You are listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. All right, take your copy of God's Word and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse number 1. James chapter 4, verse 1. Let's just bow for a moment and get God to help ask God to just bless our time this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping you. God, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart please you. Father, we pray for the 793,000 Badai people of India who've never heard your name. Father, we pray, God, that you would raise up people in India or even people in our church to go out and reach them for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 4, verse 1, page 1012. In your pew Bible, would you stand as we read God's word? James chapter 4, verse number 1. The Bible says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose? It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You may be seated. We live in a day of conflict, right? You, you can't go very far without somebody being upset at somebody else. Either it is in person or on social media or on the television. We live in a day of conflict. And in this day of conflict, we tend to uh, find uh, situations in our lives where we get involved in the same types of conflict. And you, you, you may have heard great stories of, of great conflicts. And, and maybe to some of you this morning, this story may resonate. But, but have you ever heard of the Dazzler Brothers? You may have never heard of these two brothers. Uh, one is uh, uh, Adolf and the other Rudolf. They, they're two German men who grew up in Germany. And uh, they actually started a, a shoe company together, uh, a company that uh, would start in their mother's laundry room. And their business uh, began to boom uh, because they were the, one of the first companies to, to make kind of what we see as modern-day tennis shoes. And their business boomed starting really in 1932 when, when they asked Jesse Owens to wear their shoes, uh, the Dazzler Brothers shoes, at the 1932 Olympics in Berlin, Germany. And it was there that, if you remember, Jesse Owens won the gold medal. 
uh, in, in his race, and that just great, gained all kinds of attention because the brothers were the first ones to use uh, rubber soles in the shoes. For up until that time, it was just really leather. So you imagine running on a track in leather shoes. So Jesse Owens won, and, and at this point, this, the Dazzler Brothers company just began to explode. They began to get more successful, and then World War II happened. And, and, and it was in World War II, in the midst of all of this great success, that the two brothers, Rudy and, and, and Adi, began to have a conflict. It, with success comes comes some stress that comes upon that, but there was a moment while the Allied uh, troops were bombing Germany that, that they were getting into a bomb shelter, and, and Rudy and his family were already in the bomb shelter, and, and Adi was getting his family in, and Adi made some sort of offhand comment about the Allied troops, and, and it was Rudy who heard, kind of halfway heard the comment and thought that, that Adi was making fun of his family, and it was from that moment on that the brothers never spoke to each other again. As a matter of fact, they began, they divided their company and they waged war against each other. Adi took half of the company, Rudy took the other half. And Adi took his company and named it, after his name, Adidas. Rudy took the other half of the company and he first named it Ruma, but then he named it Puma. And you may have never heard their story, but you maybe wore their shoes. But this rivalry that took place between Adi and Rudy became so bitter that the town itself was divided. As a matter of fact, the two brothers built competing factories on the opposite banks of a river in the heart of the city. And this town itself began to be divided. Local businesses would only serve Adidas people or Puma people. Dating within the city and marrying within the city was forbidden to cross company lines. If you were an Adidas employee, you could not date or marry a Puma employee. It was so much so that the town got a, a nickname in Germany called the Town of Bent Necks. Because the, only, the first thing that you would do when you met somebody in the town is you would bend your neck down to see what kind of shoes they had on. It wasn't until 2009 when the employees of both companies ended 60 years of feuding by playing a friendly soccer match, but by then both Rudy and Adi had both died, and they died within four years of each other, but even in death, their animosity continued as they were buried at opposite ends of the same cemetery as far away from each other as possible. A conflict that went to the death. This morning, Pastor James is continuing talking about functional faith in everyday life. He has taught us throughout this entire message in his book that faith is not just something you profess to have. It's something that you show that you have. And what he has done in this book is he has outlined what a transformed Christian life looks like. And, and we've kind of walked through this thus far. A, a Christian faith uh, reveals itself, demonstrates itself in a controlled tongue, a compassionate heart, and a clean life. And, and this morning, he is sharing with us in chapter 4 a case study on conflict. Something that is regular, something that is familiar, something that is present in all of our lives to show us that true faith deals with conflict differently than the world does. 
And I want you to get the very heart of our message this morning, and that is this. James is going to show us how genuine faith responds to conflict in everyday life. Genuine faith is humble and deals with the real cause of conflict, not just the symptoms, by running to the grace of God. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Put your seatbelts on. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Number one, first point we want to look at is the cause of the conflict. It is closer than you think. Chapter, one, chapter 4, verse 1, he asked the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fighting among you? Again, James is asking questions. He is pastoring through questions. He's leading through questions. He wants to ask them a question. What is the source of all the relational conflicts that you have in your life? He wants them to think about their conflicts. So I want you this morning to think about the struggles that you have with other people. Think of those in the church. Think those outside the church. Think of it within your home. Think in your life. Think at work. Think in your neighborhood. And ask yourself this question, why is this conflict happening? Who is to blame? Now again, James is, within telling us this, telling us that this is an ongoing issue in the early church. That yes, as we read Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 where the Bible says that the church was of one heart and one mind, well, it didn't take long for that to end. (laughs) And quarreling and fighting happened. And so James here is not presenting a flattering picture of the early church. John Stott, who writes about the early church, said that it was not all romance and righteousness. They were in this time, early, early church were struggling with interpersonal relationships and conflicts within the church. You can read the the epistles of James and John and Peter and Paul, and he addresses, even by name, individuals who were in the church who were fighting against each other. As a matter of fact, if you read Philippians chapter 4, Paul ends his book with a smackdown. He says, it's time for some of you to get along. So what James is asking the question that I want to ask you this morning is that what is going on? What is the cause of the conflict that you have with other people in your life? Because in James's understanding, this is not something occasional. This is something that's ongoing and it is common. And when we are confronted with our conflicts, when we're confronted with a passage of Scripture like this, we tend to blame other people. And we begin to think, well, you know what, if they weren't this way, or if they didn't say this, or if they didn't do that, we wouldn't have any problems. And, and maybe in your mind you think, you know what, the reason I'm struggling with my, 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 my husband or my wife or my kids or my neighbors or my coworkers or somebody in church is because they're unreasonable. They're inconsiderate. They're selfish. They're self-centered. They're arrogance. And if they weren't that way, there would be no problems. And if you listen to maybe how you talk, you can even maybe hear what a child sounds like. James here, however, does not let us answer the question of conflict by blaming other people. He tells us that the cause of the conflict is not everyone else. The cause of the conflict is me. And it's you. James answers this rhetorical question by saying this. Is it not this? What is the cause of quarrels and fights? Is it not this? That it is your passions at war within you. The cause to James is not confusing. It's not mysterious. It's not demonic. It is not something outside of you, but it is something inside of us all. 
If you this morning are angry, irritated, or actively participating in conflict, the problem is not everyone else. The problem, James says, is you. Now, I didn't get a lot of amens on that. <laughs> the war on the outside with others starts with the war on the inside within you. James here defines this. Notice, he talks about three things. He says, notice in verse number one, is it not, the, is it not your passions, your passions that are at war within you? Verse two, you desire and do not have. You covet and cannot obtain. Notice here, the issue is your passions, your desire, you covet. And what he's getting at is this, your passions, we get our word hedonism from, it literally means to live for your own self, to live for your own comfort and convenience and, convenience and control. But you don't care about anyone else's needs, you just care about your own. You, you all, we all struggle with a tendency towards narcissism. And he says, is not the cause the fact that you want to live for yourself, your comfort, your convenience, your control. And then he says, your desires. This is the word that James has used all throughout the book, epithumia. It's over-desires. It's not necessarily that you want something bad, but that you want it badly, that you crave it, that it controls you, it becomes your idol. So he says, is not the reason of conflict your over-desires, your hedonistic tendencies, and your coveting, your envying. You want something that someone else has, their position, their possessions, or their power. Isn't that not the cause of conflict? So what he says to us this morning is this, is that conflict does not create sin. Conflict reveals sin. Just like we tend to think about marriage, that marriage creates problems. No, marriage does not create problems. Marriage reveals problems. It reveals problems that were already there before you got married. See, conflict reveals certain unsatisfied Sinful cravings in your life. Conflicts that you have with other people are the smoke that points to the fire of your sinful craving. You want control. You want comfort. You want money. Lust. Pride. Possessions. Fame. Pleasure. These sinful cravings are, are the source of the conflicts. So the question is, why is it that we fight other people? And it's often this, because we don't get what we want. And when you don't get what you want, you fight. Me? Right? If you peel back the onion of your conflict, you will find the true source of the conflict is you. I sit down with, with people in premarital counseling and postmarital counseling and people that are in marriage and they're struggling and I sit down with them, and I discuss the, the, the fight. And, and I will say, play out a fight for me. Let's talk about some sort of fight that you've had. And, and we begin to hear his side, and we begin to hear her side. And, and then I begin to kind of ask them some questions. And, and once we boil the sucker down, we find that what typically is the cause of the disagreement, the cause of the conflict within the marriage, is some sort of unmet need or unrealistic expectation that the other person had of the spouse. For example, the, the wife may have had this expectation that the husband was always going to be romantic. 
that he was always going to be loving and always going to be gentle and always going to treat her like he did on their first date. And so in her mind, that when they get married, he's just going to be Prince Charming. And then now she wakes up to Bubba. And Bubba has, has, has traded in his upper chest for lower drawers. And he's not as sweet and as kind. And so he doesn't give her the romantic love that she feels like she needs. And he has this idea that she's going to be as loving and as sweet and as excited to see him as she used to be. And now she's not. And what happens is, is that, and this is a, that's a funny example, but I'm hoping to kind of illustrate it in a way, is that there's this unmet expectation, unmet need, unrealistic expectation. Let me just share with you that, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but only God can meet your expectations. If you're marrying somebody to complete you, ha! <laughs> Good luck. But what I'm trying to say is that the cause of your conflicts, if you boil them down, is typically, if not always, an issue in your heart. When you get upset on I-4 and you get angry, and some of you need to repent right now, <laughs> you have this unrealistic expectation that you're going to get to Disney on time. But if you boil things down, you'll see that all these conflicts are symptoms not the cause. The cause is our sinful cravings. That's what James is saying here. But he's not only talking about the cause, but he's also going to talk about the core. Uh, you, you go to the very core of the cause, and he's going to tell us that it is worse than we think. We laugh about it. We make light of these unmet expectations and I mean, unmet needs and unrealistic expectations. And from our perspective, we just see them as fights and quarrels. But from God's perspective, notice how he kind of changes it. In God's perspective, he calls it war and he calls it murder. You know, Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 5, when he was talking about the Ten Commandments, he said, you have heard it said you shall not kill. But if you read what he says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, but if you hate your brother, if you are angry at your brother, it's the same as murder. That if you boil it down, we minimize it. We say, oh, I've just got an issue with this person. Oh, I've just got a problem with this. But if you minimize this issue and you just say, you know what, it's private, it's personal, you're missing really the very core of it because here's what you have to understand. When we examine our conflicts more carefully we will see that our conflict is ultimately not with other people, but it's ultimately with God. The, we, the reason we fight with others is because we're inwardly fighting with God. And then you say, well, how is that true? Well, you know what, if you have unmet, expect, unmet needs and, and unrealistic expectations, it could be that you see the circumstances of your life as as being horrible, and you're upset with God because your, your circumstances are not what you think they should be, and, and you lash out and in displacement, you, you fight somebody else because you're not getting what you need. Because listen, if you really boil it down, the core of the conflict is with God. And here's what he says in verse number 2. He says, you do not have 
Because you do not ask. He talks about two ways in which this conflict with God manifests itself. Number one, in prayerlessness. You do not have because you do not ask. You are willing to fight with others rather than pray to God. He's just told us that every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, from the Father. Everything in your life that's good is from God. But our sinful cravings, our passions, our desires, our coveting blind us to that truth. We don't see that. So we fight with others rather than pray because we've lost sight of the goodness of God. And we demand someone else provide our needs that only God can provide. And here's the problem. They can't or they won't, so we fight. Rather than praying, we fight. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. These desires that you have, this desire, these needs that you have, instead of asking God for these desires, to fulfill your desires, to satisfy your heart, you look to somebody else and they can't meet that need, so you get aggravated at them. That's one way. Prayerlessness that our conflicts with others reveals itself with our conflict with God. But here's another way that it reveals itself. Our conflict with others reveals our conflict with God. He says in verse number 3, you ask and do not receive. James here is expecting his readers to object. He's expecting them to say, hey, I've been praying. I've been praying. I've just not been receiving. The problem's not me. It's got to be with God. Because I've been asking. I've been patient. I've been waiting. And if he's not going to do anything, then I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. I don't have time to wait around. And he says the reason that you don't receive is because you ask wrongly. Because you are spending it on your own passions. We're going to talk about that here in a second. The reason that we do not receive when we pray is because often we are praying to try to manipulate God to try to use God as a means for self-gratification and, self and self-exaltation rather than praying to God because you love God. You see how this conflict with others really reveals your conflict with God and it, ex and it exposes itself in prayerlessness. I don't pray because I don't think it'll do any good. Or I do pray and I get aggravated and I don't get what I ask for. And the reason why is that God says, I will not be used. I'm not going to be used. You can't pray to me, Lord, give me a Mercedes Benz. My friends all have Porsches, I must make amends. Because the purpose of prayer, listen, this is a good word. The purpose of prayer is not aligning God to our desires. But it is aligning our desires to God's. Not getting our will done in heaven but having God's will done on earth. And many people are praying godless prayers that have nothing to do with the will or the kingdom of God, but they are hoping that somehow, someway, God will grant their desires and deliver them from what they have decided is best for them and what would please them the most. David Henderson, in his book, Culture Shift, says this. This is going to be a tough word, but I think it's a word we all need. He says this. He says, we have tended to turn the Christian faith into a relationship through Christ with a God who is the divine vending machine in the sky, there to meet our every need. Unhappy, unattractive, unsuccessful, unmarried, unfulfilled, come to Christ and He will give you everything you ask for. 
we forget that God is not primarily in the, in the business of meeting needs. We, when we make him out to be that, we squeeze him out of his rightful place at the center of our lives and we put ourselves in his place. God is in the business of being God. Christianity cannot be reduced to meeting people's needs. When we attempt to do so, we in, invariably distort the heart of the gospel. Do you hear the tone I am giving in this message? It is, it is just as much for you as it is for me, the seriousness of this. And if you don't believe the seriousness of this, look in verse number 4. In verse number 4, here is what he says. You adulterous people. That is very nice language. It's cleaned up. We could use another word, and you wouldn't like me saying it from the pulpit, but that's what he's meaning in this verse. You adulterous people. This is Old Testament language that was, that was used to describe the unfaithfulness of God's people to God. He says that the very core of our problem is spiritual adultery. Now, what is adultery? Adultery is when I give to one the love that I have promised to another. I don't know if that's on the slides, brothers, up there. If it's not, then I just I missed it. But adultery is when I give to one the love that I have promised to another. God says that when you look to others, when you look to the world to meet your desires, you are cheating on me. When I give attention and affection to anything other than God, I am cheating on God. I am betraying God's love for me. I am prostituting myself out to false gods. And that's why he says, do you not know, brothers and sisters, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. It is open hostility. Could you imagine if you're married and your husband is with another woman that is not you and he's arm in arm with her posting selfies flaunting it. Is he not in those actions, in that moment, standing as an enemy to his marriage and the welfare of his wife? Yes. The same is true with me. Anytime I choose my will, my way over God's, I stand in open hostility towards God. Friendship in the first century is totally different than how we view it today. Today you can have 2,538 friends on Facebook. Friendship in this day, in James's day, was sought after and was very restricted. In Jesus' ministry, you see it that Jesus really, he, he, only had, he really had three close friends, Peter, James, and John. Yes, he had the 12. Yes, he had the 70. Yes, he had the 120. But he spent the most of his time with the three. 
Friendships in James's day were restrict, restricted because you just can't go deep with everyone. And so to be a friend of the world is to go deep with the world, to let the world shape you, mold you, and lead you, to let the world shape you as a friend is a complete insult, an assault to God. But yet, yet, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we are more molded and shaped it shaped by our culture than we are by Christ. The way we live, the way we act, the way we treat other people. And in doing so, we're standing in open hostility against the God we love. He says in verse 6, hopefully, pardon me, verse 5, that's my bad. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, this is actually, that's verse 4. I, I don't know if verse 5 is, is on the slides, so I'm just going to read it to you from the text. He says, or do you suppose that it's no purpose that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God yearns jealously, jealously. You know, Oprah Winfrey heard about the jealousy of God and it turned her off because she didn't understand it. God is a jealous God. And contrary to what signs you may see on I-4, he's an angry God as well. God desires for his people to be wholeheartedly, unreservedly his. And not flirting with the attitudes and the values of the world. But yet, I want you to hear that God's jealousy is not like our jealousy. That, that's the reason that, that people like Oprah had a problem with when she heard that God is a jealous God. That she just saw that as an evil, sinful jealousy. No, God's jealousy is not out of fear or insecurity. His jealousy is this, is that I have put my spirit in them. My glory is at stake in them. Their joy is at stake in them. I don't want them prostituting themselves to the world. Paul Tripp on this text said this. He says, rather than saying at this moment, how dare you, he turns our hearts to the glorious and beautiful and faithful eternal love of God that says, do you not know who you are? You are people who by the glory of God's grace have been chosen to be objects of eternal love. Now let me ask you this question. If I came to my wife April after church today and said this to April, I said, April, of all the women I love, I love you the most. What do you think her reaction would be this afternoon? Not good. <laughs> I think of a Willie Nelson song. To all the girls I've loved before. But here's the truth. If I truly, really love April, she's going to want that love to be an exclusive love. And so does God. See, that's how God wants us to love him, with all our heart, with all our soul. That's why that's the first commandment, the great commandment. But the reason that we can love him is because he first loved us. And because he loves us, he does not want a fickle, unfaithful, selfish, wandering heart. He wants us to see him as the supreme treasure and delight, the one we truly want, the one that satisfies our hearts and our souls. And when we get to that place, we're going to find the cure. Let me give you the last point real quickly. The cure of the conflict. It's easier than you think. The cause, it's closer than you think. It's you. It's worse than you think. It's with God. It's easier than you think. You know, if I see that the main cause of my conflict 
is not with others but with God, then the only way that I can solve the conflict I have with others is I have to find the cure of my conflict with God. Here's the good news. That God and Jesus Christ is in absolutely everything necessary for you to have a right relationship with God. I love verse 6. Now we're going to use it. Say this with me. But He gives more grace. Do you realize He doesn't give more justice? Justice is getting what you deserve. He doesn't give more mercy, even though He does give us mercy, but mercy is not getting what we deserve. But what He gives us is He gives us grace that's better than we deserve. That God's disposition towards those of us who are quarreling and fighting is grace. That He is eager to give us grace. In spite of our sinful, wandering hearts, He gives us grace upon grace. Aren't you glad that God's not just a God of second chances? If he was just a God on second chances, I'd been in trouble a long time ago. I'm probably on one my one millionth chance right now. But he gives more grace. He just keeps showering grace. The fact that you're not in hell at this moment is the sheer grace of God. There's an Old Testament story. It's actually a book called Hosea. Hosea was an Old Testament prophet. And God told him, I, I want you to live out the prophecy I have against my people. He says, I want you to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Now that should be a first sign to you. That something's not right with her. Her name is Gomer. Men in this church, single men, do not marry a woman named Gomer. Parents, do not name your children Gomer. Even if your last name is Piles, don't do it. So they get married. And she cheats on him repeatedly. They even have children, or she has children, and they name one of their kids, not mine. Hosea names the kids. And here is... Not mine. <laughs> Poor kid. She then leaves him again and again. And God tells Hosea, go back and get her. And she had gotten to the place where she had sold her body to the night and became a slave. And God says, you go and you buy her back. It's a Hosea spent a lot of money and bought his wife back and he brought her home and what did she do? She cheated on him again and he brought her back and God says that is the picture of my grace towards my people that even though they repeatedly cheat upon me I bring them back. See the good news of the gospel is that God's grace abounds all the more. How does God deal with our adultery? With grace and forgiveness. Now this is not a license to sin. He's not saying shall we continue in sin that God's grace may abound. No. But what we learn here is that He turns up the volume of grace so loudly that the volume of our rebellion is no longer heard and hopefully is eradicated altogether. God's grace is greater than all our sins. The reason we sang the first song this morning is to get that in our heart. That our sins, they are many. But His mercy is more. And he says in verse 6, 
Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you have rebelled against God, don't just think that you owe, that you are owed the grace of God. Don't, don't just think that you have earned the grace of God or that you deserve the grace of God. Because God says, I will not give it if you're proud. And I will tell you that what keeps a lot of people from experiencing the forgiving grace of God is that their unwillingness to see and recognize their need for it. They're arrogant. They're more willing to bear the weight of their sins than to give it to God. And God says, listen, I will forgive. My grace is more than your sin. I've got more grace than you've got sin, but I am not going to give you grace if you're arrogant. He says he gives grace to the humble. Those who are spiritually bankrupt. Tim Keller says, that this concept where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He's not saying blessed are the middle class in spirit. Many of us are middle class in spirit. That we think, ah, we're not as rich as the rich people, but we're not as poor as the poor people. That we, we can hold our own. Well, God's saying, listen, you cannot receive my grace if you think you can hold your own. You only receive grace when you realize that you are hopeless without the grace of God. Because God will not force himself on you. So then he gives us the steps. Notice these steps. Verse 7. Submit to God. Submit yourself therefore to God. If you want the grace of God, if you want to cure the conflict between you and God, it first starts by you submitting to God, by you yielding to him. Stop running from him. Kneel before him. Stop fighting him. Submit to him, your sinful cravings. Say, God, I struggle with these things. And it's not like he doesn't know. Give your life over to him. Give your cravings over to him. Ask him to change your heart. Surrender. Say, God, I want you more than I want these things. Help me. Submit. Then he says, resist the devil. James here is saying, rather than, rather than fight each other, fight the devil. Don't blame the devil. Acknowledge his influence and his lies, but resist him. Say no. The enemy of our souls is real. We have to be watchful. We have to be aware of his bag of trips. And when we resist, what does he say? He will flee. Do you know the highest form of resistance to the devil is when you submit your all to the king? And as we submit to God, we resist the devil. He says, draw near to God. Repent, turn from the devil, turn to God. He says, cleanse your hands, purify your heart. God, listen, always makes the first move to us. We can draw near to him because he has first drawn near to us. And when you and I turn from our sins and turn to him, we repent. But I want you to notice, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I want you to notice that repentance is more than an attitude. It is an action. And then he says in verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not saying that to be a Christian, you have to be miserable. He's not saying that you have to run around sad and morose. What he's saying is this, is that you need to grieve over your sins. I mean, could you imagine 
Your wife coming to you after she's had affairs upon you, she comes and she says, honey, I want us to reconcile. I want us to, to get back together. And then, and then you start, you agree to that. And then over and over, she just makes jokes about how many times she cheated on you and laughs about it. Do you think that her repentance is genuine? No. We need to see that our sin has affected our relationship with God. And we need to weep over them. Far too often we are too casual with our sins. We laugh about our sins. We have lost the sense of ugliness and the damage that our sin has caused. We don't see the hurt. Let me ask you this question. I want you to be genuinely sincere with this. When is the last time that you've wept over your sin? You know, what we typically do is when we sin, we ask God to forgive us, and then we feel like it's all fixed, and we're back at it again. But when's the last time that you genuinely cried and wept over your sin against God and other people? Verse 10, we're about to be done. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. God welcomes those who are humble, those who are weak, those who are needy, those who are honest. Jesus says, blessed are those that mourn, for they should be comforted. Humble yourself before God. What's keeping a lot of you from heaven is going to be, you're not willing to humble yourself before God. He says, come to me. Let me end with this. Jesus tells a story of a young man who wanted out of his father's house. And he wanted his inheritance. And when he came to his father and he says, I want my inheritance now. You know what he was saying to his dad? I wish you were dead. And his father gave him his inheritance. Gave it to him early. And in just a short time, if you, if you remember this story, the young man lived for himself. And after he lived for himself, he found himself alone by himself in poverty. He wasted all of his money. He was broke. He was desperate. And he was dirty. Then the Bible says, Jesus says that he came to his senses. And in his mind, he said, you know what? If I go back home to my father's house, the guy that I wished was dead, and I beg for his forgiveness, maybe, just maybe, he'll give me a job as a slave. You remember this story? But if you remember this story, as this young man, in a posture of humility, comes running to the house, his father sees him, and as he sees him, he begins to run towards him with outstretched arms of love and forgiveness. And the dad said to the son, he says, wow, my son who is dead is now alive again. He has come home. And the father forgave the son. But you know the interesting part of that story is he, did, he treated his son not as a slave. He treated him as a son. He exalted his son even though his son didn't deserve it. What am I saying this morning? You, you, you thought it was going to be all about conflict with other people and give you ten tips to not fight your sister. 
But I told you that the cause of your conflict with other people is just a symptom of your conflict with God. And what I want to say to you this morning, I don't care who you are. What God is trying to say to you this morning, those of you that are adulterous people, cheating on God with other gods, those that are out living for the world and living for yourself, living a doubled life, living with the pigs and the slop, here's what God is saying to you this morning. Come home. Come home. Stop running. Come home. Come to me. Your marriage needs you to come. You know what's going to cure the problems in your marriage, men and women? Is you getting right with God. Your children need you to come. You know how you can be a better parent? Is that you come to God. You get right with God. Your friends need you to come. You want to be a better friend? Be the friend of the one who will never let you down. Your community needs you to come. This church needs you to come. You'll never be able to deal with the conflict you have with others until your conflict with God has been resolved. Here's some good news. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus says this morning, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many people you've been with, how many times you've cheated on me. Just come to me. Come to me. I'll give you rest. So this morning, I want us this morning to to really think about our hearts, do some inventory this morning. And maybe some of you just need to come down to this altar and just come to God. Some of you, not for salvation, but just to come in general repentance and genuine repentance. Some of you, you need to come for salvation. You need to give your heart to Jesus this morning. But I want to call the church this morning to repentance, to come home.